0: If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5, and you can put a little marker in Isaiah chapter 40 and in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at both of those passages alongside this one. Uh, but yeah, that, I wanted to tie that in, so hang on to that phrase for me, okay? Jesus was making all of the sad things come untrue. We're, we're going to come back to that. It's very beginning. We'll tie it all up with that phrase, so just, just hold on to it. Uh, we're, we're in our second week now of the Beatitudes. Last week, we kind of opened the Sermon on the Mount, and we focused up on those first four Beatitudes, and we talked about how, uh, how culturally subversive Jesus was being, uh, that this isn't some list of virtues, but in a society, in a system totally ran by power dynamics and influence, Jesus steps into that, and he says, hey, uh, the, this crowd of formerly sick people, formerly sick people, and demon-possessed people, and paralyzed misfits, you are actually the people who are blessed. By the way, if you want to listen to that or you want to pick up, uh, we do have all of our sermons up on Spotify or Google Podcasts, so you can go back, look that up, listen to it. I tell people it's a great way to fall asleep at night. So. <clears throat> That's my, my favorite joke. But our point last week as we uh, wrapped all that up was we talked about how Jesus, in, in his new kingdom, he ushers in this kingdom and with it comes a new reality. A, a new reality where what once was perceived as trash, if you'll remember at the end of the sermon last week, the, the light shines onto it and it becomes this point of beauty and eloquence and art that, that God has this ability in his kingdom to shine light on the mess we've made of the world and turn it into something incredible. And so we're gonna continue on through this, but, but it all happens because of Jesus. So it's not like we read the Beatitudes and we should come up with some list of commands or virtues. We shouldn't read, blessed are those who mourn, and say, all right, anybody in here happy? We need to change that. Let me uh, show you some really sad pictures. That's, that's not what that is all about. But instead reading it as Jesus saying, even in a world where you don't feel blessed, if you know me, you are blessed. I am the means of blessing in this world. And so we're trying to treat these Beatitudes almost more like a stained glass window. Where each Beatitude is a separate piece of stained glass. And the question I want to ask, so two things you have to hold on to that we'll come back to at the end of the sermon. Uh, The first one is that Jesus was making all the sad things come untrue. The second thing, if we treat the Beatitudes as some form of stained glass, what does the picture look like? All these things pieced together, what does that picture look like? We'll come back to both of those things at the end. But for today, we're going to keep walking, so let me just read the Beatitudes to you again, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed. When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, we're going to somewhat focus on the final four today, but I want to see if I can piece all of this together in a way that's relevant to us 2,000 years later. And I will confess, the next four on this list definitely sound a little bit more like virtues. They they sound a little bit more like commands uh, we can follow to some extent, especially, you know, blessed are the merciful. As as a Christ follower, should you be a merciful person? Yes. Blessed are the peacemakers. As a Christ follower, should you be a peacemaker? Yes. They read a little bit more like virtues. And so there is, I think, to some extent, some commands, some applications just in that alone. But, but even if this is commands from Jesus, even if this is good advice from Jesus, the promises attached to these beatitudes or to these blessed characteristics, they don't always make sense. It puts us in a bit of a weird predicament. Which that raises all these other questions, because what do you do when you hear something from someone you trust, But the thing they're saying to you just doesn't feel right. So, when I was in high school, I uh, I ran cross country, and my cross country coach had this thing at the end of every practice, he called it goo juice. It sounds delicious, doesn't it? It was not. Um, I, the best I can describe it, he would like, and this is, you know, Tennessee, humid, 103 degree weather. And he would go in his truck. So I guarantee you this thing was just sitting in his truck all day long. Like it wasn't refrigerated. It was like coffee hot. And he would pull it out from this old milk jug. And it looked like Gatorade. And he had different flavors, yellow, blue. But he would only say, like, this is blue flavored, which I don't know what that means. But, um, but it tasted like Gatorade that had absolutely no sugar in it. And it said all the sugar was replaced with, with uh, salt. That's what it tasted like. And I don't know if it was replaced with salt or if, like, he used, like, sweaty socks. Because that's, that's what this stuff tasted like. It was, it was horrible. And he would get it out, and he would pour it in a little bitty kind of Gatorade cup. And he'd say, you guys need to drink this. It helps you replenish all those nutrients you lose when you're sweating and, and running in the, like, hot Tennessee heat. And maybe, I don't know, but that doesn't feel right by the way it tasted and that got me thinking, like, why did I drink that stuff? And it has to be because I trusted my coach, right? Because had I ran a cross-country race and any other person I didn't walk, know walked up to me and said, hey, you want some goo juice? <laughs> no, I don't want that. Thank you very much. Get that away from me. So there is a level of, like, hey, when I know I can trust someone, even if what they're telling me doesn't make sense, I can still trust them. But I think we can even go a couple layers below that. There is an element of it. We call that faith. It's a good thing to put that in Jesus. But if Jesus is right, then we should have ways to kind of make a little bit more sense of it. Because if my coach was right, I went back and did all this research, and it does look like what it was trying to do is replace like salt and this caloric stuff that you would lose in sweating that would help keep you from cramping and all this other stuff. So there was some science behind it. I don't understand it, but... Is there stuff behind what Jesus is saying that we can make sense of this? Because what do I do when I read Jesus' words and he says, blessed are the mourning for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek because they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. And I just take that and I faithfully trust Jesus but I compare it to my life experience. And I think what you'll find is what Jesus is giving here is not some list of timeless truths. I know far, many, far too many stories where people embody these characteristics, but they don't seem to find the promise attached. But blessed are those who mourn. Are the mourn, are those who mourn always comforted? I've known plenty of people who have mourned a wayward child, and for years they've not found relief from that day after day they pray and they cry out and day after day they don't seem to see anything change there are plenty of people that struggle with depression and even though they trust the reality of jesus and they pray to jesus they wake up in the morning and morning after morning there's just something so heavy in their hearts that it's hard to lift out of bed jesus you're telling me that the people who mourn will be comforted do the meek always inherit the earth Sometimes, not really, and I don't mean to give like political commentary here, but just because it's a kind of good example in my opinion, go to Washington, D.C., and just look at people on both sides of the political aisle. Likeliness is, humility is not a characteristic you're going to find a lot of. And I don't, again, I'm not trying to make commentary and be rude about that, but just the people who run this country are not the meek. They tend to be the rich, the powerful, the Ivy League graduates, the educated, the ones with friends in high places. It's those who don't hesitate all that much to lie or to cheat or to steal or to self-promote in order to get ahead. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're saying the meek inherit the earth? I've seen way too many people inherit the earth that are the exact opposite of that. Do, do the merciful always receive mercy? I mean, have you read updates from Voice of the Martyrs? Because they put out article after article after article of people who love Jesus and show mercy to the people around them only to be ran out of their house and thrown into jail cells and even killed. Those people who were merciful didn't receive mercy, Jesus. Are those who seek peace, are the peacemakers always called sons and daughters of God? I mean, have you ever attempted to step into someone else's conflict to try to bring reconciliation? And then you become the tug-of-war rope in between them? that rather than being called son of God, you're called manipulative or nosy or stay in your lane. Once again, Jesus' words, they they, they may feel good on the surface, but a few moments of thinking about that paired with a lifetime of experience will challenge everything he seems to be saying. How do we make sense of Jesus' words when it just sometimes feels like they're not true? And verse 12, by the way, gives us the answer but it really only starts cluing us in to the answer. Verse 12 says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. So whatever these promises are, there's something that's tied to them that's tying us to heaven, but that in itself brings us a whole slew of extra questions. So let's explore it. Does that sound good to you guys? All right, when Matthew says the word heaven, over and over again, Matthew's gonna use heaven throughout his gospel and sometimes he'll just say heaven like like in this case, but far more often than that, what Matthew is going to say is he's going to use the phrase the kingdom of heaven. Over and over, chapter 4, chapter 5, Matthew's going to continually reference the kingdom of heaven. And that word kingdom is supposed to start cluing us in to some things that I think we don't always pick up on all that well because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as the original readers or the original crowd that Jesus spoke to was familiar with the Old Testament So in order for us to understand what Matthew is doing, we have to understand this concept of kingdom. And to prove that, I would just take you back quickly to chapter four, a couple of verses to have you look at. And I understand if you were here like four weeks ago, we talked at length about this, but I want to do it again in a bit of a different way to see if I can connect some dots here for you this morning. Matthew four, uh, look at just verse 17 really quickly. Verse 17, uh, I have these verses up on the PowerPoint as well, Kelsey. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jump down to verse 23. 23 tells us now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And again, Matthew's going to use this word, preaching the good news of the kingdom. So all of this to be said, whatever's going on, Matthew's taking these phrases, good news. He's taking these phrases, kingdom. To some extent, he's even taking the word, repent. And he's tying them all together, and he's inviting us back into the Old Testament to ask, what has God been doing about these things from the Old Testament to now? Now, for the sake of time, I can't go into all of it, so I'll just highlight repent really fast. Repent is the idea, the literal Greek is to change your mind on something. Uh, One of my favorite interpretations, more of an interpretation than a translation, but it's uh, give up your agenda. Because the king has come and he has a new agenda. I I like that way of saying it. Or stop what you're doing. The kind of more churchy way is and turn away from it. Stop your sin, turn away. The idea is whatever Jesus is doing on earth, it's worthy for you to stop and consider, is the direction of my life aligned with what he is doing? And if it is not, turn it and follow what the new kingdom has brought. But all of these are closely tied to this idea of the good news of the kingdom which begs the question, what is the good news of the kingdom? Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, um, this, just context stuff really quickly. Isaiah is writing at this point. Israel has already been put um, into captivity in Babylon. They're in exile at this point. They're under the boot of Babylon Babylon's come in, they've destroyed the temple, they've destroyed Jerusalem. Um, and in Ezekiel, we see that the presence of God is seen leaving the temple and then coming into Babylon to be with God's people. It's an image that we don't pick up on as much, but for ancient Israel would have been a huge thing. So Isaiah is giving commentary on this reality. Oh, and, and by the way, I didn't make a highlight of this, but Matthew 3 3 quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So there's already a connection within early Matthew in this chapter. But I want to Ask this question here: What is the good news of the kingdom? Isaiah chapter forty, verse nine. It says this: Zion, herald of good news. Already, I got to stop and give commentary. I'm sorry, uh, Zion. We we use that church, in, we use that word in church sometimes. Uh, just simply speaking, uh, Zion was the hill where David builds the tabernacle. It was called Mount Zion or the hill of Zion. And so that became kind of a way to refer to Israel as a whole or Jerusalem as a whole. In a lot of ways, it would be the same thing as us saying, like, uh, did you hear what the White House said? The White House didn't say anything. It's a house. We use the term White House to refer to, like, the leadership of America or the president. Or did you hear what D.C. said? So when Isaiah's saying Zion, herald of good news, he's saying the, the Israelites, Jerusalem, these people that are telling the good news. Well, what is the good news? Uh, Go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it and do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. You start seeing kingdom language unfold here. Hey, get up on a, na- on a hill and start shouting, God has returned, and he's reestablishing his rule, his reign, his kingdom. If that's not enough for you, you can jump down um, to verse 22. God is enthroned above the circle of earth. His inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing. So again, over and over again, what's the good news of Isaiah chapter 40? What is Israel supposed to go and shout from a mountaintop that's just so exciting? The king has risen The king has come back, God is back, and he's taken his rightful place over the universe as king. And so you can only imagine when there are people, as Jesus is walking town to town saying, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. That this has to start talking, uh, sparking all of these conversations. Could it be that this is the exact good news Isaiah told us about hundreds and hundreds of years ago? And that gives us some clues, but I'm not sure it necessarily helps us understand the Beatitudes in itself. We at least start understanding when Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven has come. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We're, We're piecing things together, but how does this help us understand the Beatitudes? Well, I wanted to mark that out first. What is the good news of the kingdom? When Isaiah, it's just the kingdom of God has come. Jesus, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus is building what Isaiah has already talked about. But hold that thought and go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is also a book written in the same exile period. This is written from a guy named Daniel. Uh, and Daniel is in a really interesting situation. He's, he's exiled out of Israel into Babylon. But he is actually placed to serve in the, the palace of the king himself. Daniel is in a way enslaved to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the way Daniel 2, the story goes, the king has had this dream and he can't find anyone that's going to interpret it for him. And so finally, and I'm paraphrasing a lot here, you can read the first part of Daniel 2 if you're interested, but finally Daniel says something along the lines of, I'll take a stab at it, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel chapter two, he starts to interpret this dream. Chapter two, let me start in verse 31. It says this, Your Majesty, you were watching, and suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold, and its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze, and its legs were iron. And its feet were partially iron and partly fired clay. And as you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay. And the bronze and the silver and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Have you read Daniel recently? It's a very fun book, and you're like, I don't understand anything that's happening here. Uh, luckily, Daniel gives us some interpretation for this one to, to help us out a little bit, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king his in, uh, the interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. By the way, that's a fun thing to say. Just go into work tomorrow and tell your boss, hey, I just want you to know the only reason you have any authority here is because God gave it to you, Okay? It's always a safe place to start a conversation with the king, but that's what Daniel tells him. Hey, you are the king of kings because God has made you that, which again, king of kings, but God is the one that's in charge, so what does that make God? Are you picking up on what Daniel's saying here? And he says, uh, you're the king of kings, verse 37, the God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he is a handed them all over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And Daniel's going to go on and he's going to say, after you, verse 39, will rise another kingdom inferior to yours. And he's going to start saying, these other kingdoms are representative of the other parts of this statue. He says it's going to be your kingdom and then three to come after that. And then jump down to verse 44. In the day of those kings, the kings of these other kingdoms, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom... That will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. You saw a stone break off from a mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is reliable." So again, somewhat hard to kind of comprehend, but Daniel gives us a pretty clear explanation. You have your statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, all all of this stuff. And Daniel's going to say, what's going to happen is a rock is going to fall, uh, not from human hands, but from heaven. And it is representative of what? God's kingdom. And it's going to do what to this statue? Crush it into dust. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, four kingdoms. After that, a stone will fall from heaven, crush this statue entirely into dust. And, and how long will that stone's kingdom last for? Forever. So again, take that, hold on to it. Fast forward to first century Ju- Judaism. The first century Jewish people, they, they weren't dumb people. They knew history like you and I know history. They were able to trace back through. They had parents and grandparents and school classes that taught them how the world got to where it was today. And so by the time Jesus is walking around, this story is nearly 600 years old. And do you want to take a stab at how many kingdoms had risen to power in those 600 years? Well, you have Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, of course. And shortly after Babylon, uh, another uh, country comes, a nation by the name of Persia with King Xerxes. And they take power over Babylon. And then after that, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great comes in and he conquers the known world and starts this kingdom that is often known as Greece or the Greek kingdom. And then off the shoulders of that, Julius Caesar comes to palace and starts the Roman kingdom. Jewish people would have been able to count. Okay, Daniel said there were four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. I wonder when this rock's about to fall. And you can actually go back and start looking at rabbinic literature and what Jewish leaders are writing, and they're talking about this. There's people that are coming onto the scene saying, I'm the Messiah, and then they die and nothing happens to them. This is starting to pick up traction, and all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the foothills of Nazareth, starts walking around, and he's saying, repent, the kingdom of God has come. What emotion is this invoking in this crowd? Could this be the rock? Is he falling? Is he about to crush and obliterate this statue into dust? And do I have front row tickets to watch the show? Do you see why people are following Jesus? And as people start to follow Jesus, and as this is on the forefront of their mind, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and he begins to teach. And the opening phrase, back to Matthew chapter 5, is the Beatitudes. At the scene on the sermon, Surely there's this electrifying realization. The kingdom has come. The meek are going to inherit the earth. The mourning are going to be comforted. The people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's about to fill the land. Showing mercy, you're going to receive mercy. With a purity of heart, you will see God making peace in the world. We will be called children of God. Do you feel the excitement? The stone is coming. The statue is soon to be obliterated. And then Jesus gives the last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And I think if they had records back then, this might be where the record scratch noise comes in. Wait a minute, Jesus, we don't get persecuted. You're the one that falls from heaven, destroys all of this into dust, and set up the rule and reign like it's supposed to happen. What do you mean we get persecuted? That's not part of the deal I've read. Jesus, have you read Daniel chapter 2? That's not what's supposed to happen. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's dropping a huge clue as to what this kingdom is going to look like. Let me complicate it a little bit more for you. Fast forward from the point Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount 60 years or so. Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. The spirit has fallen at Pentecost. The early church has started. And so early church, they wouldn't have met in a room like this. It would have been far more just meeting in houses. Uh, and then usually after someone gives some sort of exhortation, like a sermon, they would get together. They would have a big meal. Usually Lord's Supper was gonna be a part of that meal. And so let's just, hypothetically, let's say you're at a church in Thessalonica. And the guy that's kind of the leader of that church says, hey, guys, next week, Matthew himself, the tax collector that followed Jesus, he's going to be here to tell us about what it was like following Jesus. Matthew comes in, and the the house is packed because everyone wants to hear what Matthew has to say. And Matthew gets up, and he starts quoting Jesus' beatitudes to you. When Jesus taught, I remember he taught stuff like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So Matthew gets done with his thing, and you guys all get together, and you sit around the table afterwards, and it's a time to kind of discuss some things. And everything on your mind wants to say, wait a minute, Matthew. Like, half of those things you told me just are not true. Ma- Matthew, Emperor Nero is literally coating Christians in tar and impaling them on spears and lighting them for his garden parties. That's That's Roman historians. Say, that's what Nero was doing. Matthew, you want to tell me that the merciful receive mercy? Uh, Matthew, my dad, who who is the most pure in heart person I've ever met, that dude lived more like Jesus than anyone I've known. And his work partner betrayed him uh, to Rome. His work partner stole our land, and now he's sitting in a jail cell? The pure in heart see God? The only thing my dad sees is the jail cell. Matthew, last time I tried to play peacemaker between the Roman centurion and the Jewish zealot, I was the one that got arrested, and they called me ignorant in the bane of society. The peacemakers are called sons of God? Matthew, I'm supposed to be rewarded for my righteousness, not persecuted. How does any of this make sense? I thought the king was supposed to obliterate this. I think Matthew would come in and say, Oh, but remember verse 12. I don't think he'd say verse 12 because I wasn't there, but he would say, Remember what Jesus said Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in the coming kingdom. I think the only way we can ever hope to make sense of the Beatitudes. The only way we can ever hope to understand what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is seeing it through the lens of the kingdom. It demands we understand what Jesus is doing with the kingdom. Because Jesus was that rock. And Jesus fulfills every messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. He absolutely inaugurates a new kingdom with himself as king. But it's totally different than what anyone expected mentioned this last week, because what typically happens when a king is inaugurated? Well, they place a crown on his head. Guess what happens to Jesus? He receives a crown, but it's not a crown of jewels, it's a crown of thorns. And kings, they're elevated and enthroned up for everyone to see them, but Jesus isn't elevated on a throne, he's elevated on a cross. And people will cry out, long live the king, but rather than crying out, long live the king, they're crying out, crucify him kill him. They put the clothing of purple on him and then rip it off as a torture device. They have the sign that says, King of the Jews, making fun of him. See, it is a crucifixion, and Jesus is brutally beaten and killed. But you might miss it. It's also an inauguration. The king takes the throne, and he goes in to conquer, not the statue of these four kingdoms, because these four kingdoms had nothing compared to what really has a hold on humanity. He goes and he conquers sin and death. And he comes back on the third day. This is the story that Jesus is telling us. The king of earth, the king of the universe subjects himself to the destruction of his own creation and he dies. So so go back with me to, to the beginning. Remember I said, what if we looked at these beatitudes as like a stained glass window? with each one being a piece, whose, whose picture is in this stained glass window? Can, can you think of someone who came from poor, insignificant circumstances, no professional religious training, no cultural status to be recognized, someone who mourned and grieved over the status of the world and the people he met, someone that, even though he himself was important, Philippians 2 says he laid that aside and took on the form of a slave and subjected himself to his own creation. Someone who longed to see the world set right. Someone who who set out to care for hurting people and show them mercy. Someone who was so devoted to the kingdom, he was willing to confront the powers of his day to bring peace and reconciliation to the point that the conflict fell upon his shoulders. And he was persecuted and killed for it. See, by all worldly accounts, the story of Jesus should be a tragedy. Or at minimum, should be a precautionary tale about how dangerous it is to subject yourself to others. Because, I mean, people are evil. They'll take advantage of you. They'll, they may even kill you. But we're not here today to mourn some tragic story or to be sad about the exemplary death of Jesus. We're here because that's actually the way the king conquered That's the way our king took rule over creation. He embodies the fullness of the Beatitudes himself, and then proving the promises true, he resurrects, standing as proof that Jesus' method of seeing this list of blessings is true and good. The king has come. The king has conquered. And then you turn a page and you find out there's more to come. There's an invitation extended to you. In theology, we call this the now and not yet, the time in between the times, the time between the world as it was before our king was inaugurated, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, and the time between the world as it will be when he comes again. You see, the Beatitudes don't, don't lead us to a set of timeless truths for this life. They lead us to a reality that just shouts at us over and over again. God is in control over eternity so that Jesus can say with confidence, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called sons of God. And when we can see Jesus like this and entrust it, what it means is that we begin to live like Jesus lives. And it starts to unfold, and it means that we start to trust the coming kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. If you trust the kingdom of this world, these will not make sense to you. They will be a waste of your time, a waste of your effort, and will not matter to anything. But if you trust the coming kingdom that has already come, we begin to see all of this unfold more And more and more. See, there should be things about our lives, things about our actions, things that just don't make sense to the rest of the world that we can only do because Jesus has already proved the claims of his coming kingdom by conquering. So that we can say with confidence, hope, forgiveness, life. It doesn't come in power grabs and money and desperate attempts for influence, hope, forgiveness, life. It comes through putting our faith in this man, in his life, in his way of life, in his death and in his resurrection. And when you do that, everything changes. Everything changes. Meaning you can embody his life model now, blessing for today which then gives you hope for tomorrow. When I was little, we would always take vacations uh, to Florida. That was kind of the thing that my family did. Uh, We lived in Tennessee, and it was like an eight-hour drive. And just part of that childlike wonder you have was uh, we would always stop at the Florida Visitation Center. I know, like, who cares about that place? But we would stop off there, and I remember they always had like free orange juice and grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice is gross. It has to taste like goo juice, I'm pretty sure. It's nasty. But, but I, loved, I loved the orange juice at that time, and so I remember like, we're going to the beach, we're going to the beach, and we would stop off, and we would taste the orange juice, and I was like, oh, the beach is so close, I can't wait for the beach, and then we would drive more and more, and all of a sudden, the, the trees start turning to palm trees, and as a kid, you're like, the palm trees are there, Mom, I see the palm trees, we've got to be close to the beach, and she'd be like, it's still an hour away, calm down. And I'd just be so excited. And finally we would get to the beach town and you could see the ocean. And like, it's right there. I see it. I can't wait. we still have to find our hotel and park and unload and all of this other stuff. Calm down, Philip. I'm like, but I see the beach. I think this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the kingdom has already come. You can taste the orange juice. You can see the palm trees. You can know it as you trust life in me. And so even when it's not good, even when you mourn, even when you feel powerless, you can stand strong knowing that you are blessed because you have tasted what I am soon to bring. Because you know what Jesus is doing? He's making the sad things untrue. Jesus is making the sad things untrue. And it starts in your life, right here, right now. And it doesn't mean your life is always up and to the right and you're only gonna have success if you follow Jesus. That's baloney, read the Bible. Almost none of them had up and to the right success models. But it does say even when you don't, you are blessed. Because when you are in the kingdom of God, there's blessing for today and there's hope for tomorrow. The question is, what are you gonna do with that hope? What are you gonna do with that blessing? Maybe you just need to come put your faith in it to begin with, Philip, I've never really trusted Jesus and you wanna come forward this morning, I would love to talk with you about that. And maybe you have done that and you just need to be reminded that even in the morning, even in the meekness, even in the sorrow, even in the pain, even as you're trying to be the peacemaker and it's not working, even as you're trying to have that purity of heart, even if you're being persecuted, you can say, Jesus, I trust your blessing now because I know the hope of the kingdom that's coming because the rock has fallen And the statue has been obliterated. And it wasn't necessarily a statue of kingdoms as much as it was a statue of sin and death, meaning your sin and your death can be obliterated by the king. Come join the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that you are our savior and our king, that you run this world and we can trust you in your power to continue doing what you have always done. And God, I I pray that you would help us to just put our faith in that kingdom model, that we would trust that you have already come and you have already been inaugurated king. You have the throne. But God, there's a day coming when you will come back and restore it once and for all. So God, as we deal with the things that are hard in this life and the here and now, let us see them as blessings, that it might push us even deeper into hope. God, may that make this church unlike any place in this town thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.